Our subject is soul winners. I hope to end the brief series tonight. This is our sixth message. Jesus told Peter in Luke 5, one of our texts, that he was going to make him fishers of men. And then in Proverbs 11, it says that if you win souls, you're wise. He that winneth souls is wise. And from those two verses, we've been talking about the subject of soul winning. Isn't it interesting that the first directions that Jesus gave us was to go, go, preach the kingdom of God, make disciples, had nothing so much to do in the beginning with us becoming giants in the faith. He wants that, but our primary purpose in being left on this earth and not taken off of this earth when God saved us was that we might be used of the Lord to bring the gospel to the lost. And that's what he meant by, I will make you fishers of men. So we asked a question in closing the last time, then who is one? If we're talking about winners of souls or the title of soul winners, then who is one? How do we know if somebody has been one? Well, they went forward, had a great emotional prayer and moment and just sorrow and sobbing and came to church, got a new Bible, started attendance and all of that. And are they one when they do that? Well, that certainly could be. I hope we all have done that. But the problem is we've all seen people do that and then bail out somewhere down the road. We read about the sower and the seed. Many started, but they didn't finish. Are they one if they only start? Or is there something in the Bible about continuing on? And what about those that don't finish and who start but give up or quit or back off in the middle of it? They go to church. They're very religious. They just have departed from the faith. It doesn't mean anything. And Hebrews 6 says, for those that have tasted the good word of God and the powers that are coming and so forth and have had a wonderful Christian experience, he said, if they fall away, for whatever reason they give, if they fall away, it would be impossible to renew them again unto repentance, seeing that they're back living the way they used to live, a way that Christ had to come and die. He had to die for the way we used to live in our sinful ways. And they go back again, having known him, and then begin crucifying him afresh by ignoring what he did for them. So that doesn't sound good if it says it would be impossible to renew them again if they fall away. Ezekiel 18 tells us, he said, the soul that sinneth, that's an interesting chapter. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And he says, if a righteous man, if a man who is just, and right with God, something that only God can cause to happen to a man. But a man in his response to God's urgings has his proper experience and he is made right with God. Ezekiel says, if a righteous man turns from his righteousness and does evil and dies that way, then all of his righteousness shall not be remembered. And the people said, that's not fair. God says, on the other hand, if an evil man turns from his evil ways and does that which is right in God's sight, in God's sight, that, that he shall be saved. Is that New Testament believism or theology? Because it sounds like that we have to do something in order to be saved. Is that a works religion or not? Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, you know, 
There are those who profess that they know God, something every one of you would do. If somebody asked you tonight, you would probably say, yeah, I know the Lord. It, you, we would probably all say it, at least to spare ourselves embarrassment of saying, I don't know if I do or not. But he said, there are those who profess to know God. He said, but in works, they deny him. And it certainly appears from that verse that works are the great determiner of whether or not you had a real experience or not, or whether or not you had a sincere experience or not. Now, nobody's perfect. We can all mess up along the way. John wrote, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus, the faithful. And if you repent, he'll forgive you and cleanse you and turn you away from all your unrighteousness. So we have that. But then there are those who just turn away from God altogether. I've known people like that. Walked as sincerely as I can imagine anybody walking. People talked about the transformation of a person's life. Boy, they, I remember them when, and man, I can't believe they're like that now. And then they quit. And they went back, and now they're probably at least as bad in their lifestyle as they used to be. I can't say, I could not say, well, they're one to Christ, because if you're one to Christ, you don't do that. So there has to be something that identifies you. Works, deeds, fruit. There are things that we do after we have been born again. You can do nothing to birth yourself again. The new birth is something that only God can do. I mean, once you're born again and he brought into his kingdom, that's when you begin to demonstrate by the way you live whether or not you're seriously a Christian or not. You may not be a Christian. You just may learn to, to do church work. But your works will define you. What we do defines all of us. How we talk, the way we act, react. I mean, if, if we're really and truly one to Christ, then it'll have to be like Jesus said, by their fruits, you shall know them. Now, it should become obvious to us and evident to us that we're on this earth for a purpose. We're in Shelbyville, Kentucky for a reason. Some of us still wonder how we got here. Very few of the people here are from here. And yet there's a reason we're here. There's a purpose. There were no mistakes in your life. You didn't just one day, whoops, here I am. What am I doing here? God sent you here. There's a reason for everything that a Christian does. There's a destiny that we all have. There's a direction. The Bible said the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And God is so intent on keeping you on the right track that when you don't live right, he'll chasten you or chastise you because he loves you. And he's going to take us from where he found us and where he began us to where he's leading us. And we're here for that purpose. We're in the world for that purpose. We're in here to influence sinners. Each one of us is required to be salt and light. Our life is a demonstration of the change that Jesus is making in us. Like a city on a hill, we, we're a light that you can't be denied that you can see it. It's very obvious that you see that light. He said, well, don't cover it up. Don't make your religion personal. Don't make your Christianity a private thing because it's a public thing. 
We're like a book that's being read by the society that we live in. Family, friends, brothers, sisters. We're all looked at and read and evaluated every day. And we trust that people can tell that we have been with Jesus, that they can see Jesus in us. We're asking the question, then how can we know if somebody is one? Well, that's part of our role here is to make sure that they are. Let me tell you how God feels about being one. Turn to Luke chapter 15 and verse 7. Luke 15 and verse 7. There are those who would probably see soul winning as secondary to other more important things in Christianity. Maybe personal holiness, personal growth, personal things that make us the kind of a deeper quality type Christian than we were. And that should be going on anyway. But there are things that I think supersede that. And you can't leave one out. It's, it's like a lot of things. You, you can't say, well, this without this. We're here for a reason. We're here to declare to the world that there really is a God. There really is a Jesus. It even goes so far in one verse, and we'll get to it later maybe, that the way we live testifies to the fact that God did sin. Jesus, look at the change he's made in your life. We have a living testimony. It's got to be in the dark days as well as the bright days. It's got to be with the up days and the down days. Whether in season, out of season, whether things are going our way or whether things are adverse. We are to live a life that, that glorifies God and this life, the purpose of living like that, is not so we can pat each other on the back for being so deep and good, it's so that others can see that you're different. So that when others ask you a reason of the hope that is within you, you'll be able to declare it. And being able to declare it and rightly divide the scriptures in declaring it is why we're here. And while we're here learning how to deal with the world and how to understand our role and place in life as well as how we relate to God, we're growing. Because we put a great premium on your personal relationship with, with God. Because the more of that grows, the more people can see that you really are the kind of person I want to talk to if I've got a problem. That you're not just a Sunday Christian, you're the real deal. That's what people should see because that should be the fruit of our being here. Listen to these words in Luke chapter 15 and verse 7. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. Now notice this, more than over 99 just persons. Now it's good to be a just person, isn't it? A just person doesn't need to, to come to Christ. He's already been brought to Christ. But he said, in heaven, there'll be, there'll be more rejoicing over a sinner that turns from his sins and comes to Christ than those who already have. Now listen to verse 10. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. I am sure there's gladness in heaven when we overcome trials and tribulations. I, I would like to think so. I would like to think that when God said he will set his angels about us to keep us in all of our ways, that that's important to him. That he wants us to be taken care of and, and to know that we're secure and that we're safe in Christ. He wants us to know that. And for those that love him, he said that he would, he would direct the steps and bring them into his glorious kingdom. But he wants us to bring others with us. 
Now, that's not something we noted for here. I don't know what we're noted for here. But that's not a thing that identifies us as soul winners. It hadn't been very often in my life here for all the years I've been here, and I speak this to my own shame. We haven't seen a lot of new people brought to the Lord by the efforts of us here. And yet the Bible talks about that a lot. It really does. I mean, that this is a whole part of the whole kingdom of God. And he says, in one sinner who repents, there is rejoicing of the angels in heaven. Now, let's say the person has truly repented and has been born again. We call that being saved. But salvation is a process. You, you receive, as Peter wrote, you receive the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Or as Paul wrote, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because it's a process. You live saved. We were, we are, we shall be. It's the way we live. We live saved, redeemed lives. If you want to know how Christians should live, all they need to do is watch you folks. Take note of you, how you live and how you talk, the choices you make, how you deal with things in life, and they'll know how a Christian ought to live. Amen? Good. Good, but now what do we do with these new people that we bring to the Lord? Church. Church. God established his church on this earth for a number of reasons. One of them is that the church becomes a training ground, a school, a place of growth and preparation for the days ahead. In Ephesians chapter 4, God put ministries in the church, did he not? He put apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers in what is called the church, his assembly. The word church really is just a building, but the Greek word church has to do with an assemblage or an assembly of people. So he said he put in the church ministries, ordinary men with a, a beyond ordinary unction or ability or gift. And the purpose of these men are to be to the church as gifts given by God for the purpose of equipping the saints for the work of what? Service, ministry. Isn't that something? Our effort is to do the work that God designed us to do, the message he gave us to give, praying for his anointing, that it's effective, and you preach the word that they're hungry, that they want it. That's when it's mostly effective, when people want it. And that they will receive the word, and the, the effect of the word, he said, will prepare them for ministry, for the ministering of the saints. Then he goes on to say some other things in Ephesians 4 about the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. That's our growth. As we assemble, as the word comes to us, not only does divine information better equip us for the task and the mission that we're on this earth for, but we're also defined. Each of us are personally defined by the word of God. It's like a mirror, isn't it? Like a mirror, the word, you look into a mirror and you see something, you see a reflection. And the mirror defines who you are. And when you look into the mirror of God's word, it defines who you are and what you're like. It begins to show you what you shouldn't be and what you should be. 
Everybody needs that. Any new Christian that walks in a door and finds himself in a church ought to experience conviction and light. He ought to see things that he needs to deal with and things that encourage him. The hope that is laid before him, I can be like that? Yes, Jesus said so. You mean I can really become? I can get beyond all this stuff that's held me back? Yes, you can. Yes, you can. But you're going to have to deal with it. That's why we teach. Some people say, well, that's too hard. Nothing's too hard that God has for us. God doesn't delight in making us grieve so hard. That's not what we're here for. Our sin was what's hard. The effect of sin, the, the actions and reactions and the stuff that we have formed in us, the way we are, everything that's not the way it should be, God wants to deal with it. And so that's what the word does. The word comes out and it begins to say what God directs it to say to all of our hearts. And a sinner should begin to see right away that this, this, I need to hear the word. My goodness, I need to hear this. And how did Jesus say he was going to cleanse his church? Y'all remember that? In Ephesians chapter 5, he said he will cleanse his church with the washing of water by the word of God. Now, what happens if we don't put a premium on the word or we neglect the word and just say things that people like to hear and not really ought to hear. Well, nothing will happen. We've wasted a lot of efforts to bring a man to nothing or people to nothing. We've only invited them to a religious system which will absolutely do nothing to prepare them for heaven or for God. They're just another social goodness that they'll add to their life. So God never leaves us like that. He gives us his word. And as workers and as those that are going to go out and witness to the world, we not only are learning ourselves what's required of us, but it gives us that where we were before we got saved feeling when we're talking to the lost. I know what you're going through. I've been where you are. I know how you feel. Oh, I grew up in a pretty rough home, and in a, well, I did too. Or I know somebody like that, but I can say I did too. Well, my parents, mine were too. My parents divorced, they, and, and they got together again. But I mean, yeah, I know what you're going through. I know how it feels. I know how it affected me. And I know when I came to the Lord, I didn't realize the effect all of that had on me until I started hearing the word. Just simple sermons. And I, God would bring to my attention the fact that I have such a problem in my attitude, in my personality, or can't control my... It's, you know why? It's because of the effect of that. Deal with it. Repent of it. Determine that you're going to get a hold of yourself and the devil's not going to rule you. I mean, things like this is what we learn. I mean, God brings us, teaches us. We begin to change. Things begin to happen because of the power of the word, an anointed word. I, will, I don't think I would ever tell a new convert, now you found your good church there. I don't think I would ever say that. I used to hear them at all the revival campaigns we used to be involved in back in those days, and we were trained to go forward and help people that want to be saved. And one of the things we were taught to tell them was, now you, you go to the church of your choice. We're so afraid that somebody might think we're proselyting these people. We'd tell them to go to the church of their choice. Well, I'm a Catholic. Well, go to the, that'd be good. Go to the Catholic. It would not. It absolutely would not be good. 
But you see, if, if you start talking about that too much and you get sound like an ugly judge, I do know a little bit about that because that was in my family too. So then I say, that's a no-no. But we begin to sort things out. We begin to deal with things. A lot of people reach a certain limit as to what they want to deal with too. They don't want to deal with personal things. They don't want to deal with the marriage. They don't want to deal with their dark night life. They don't want to deal with their private lives. They don't want to, they don't want to give up certain things. But you see, you know you should because God has shown you. The preacher didn't necessarily say that, but he just what he said in his sermon, God took some part of it, exposed your life, and you thought, oh, now if you want to keep going, you got to deal with it. Everybody walks through that door. You bring somebody to the Lord, you're going to help mentor that person and help them keep going. Tell them the truth. This is not an easy life. Not very many people that start, finish. Even Jesus said the way that leads to life is narrow. He, Jesus himself said, only if you're going to find the way to life. Many will be called, but only a few will be chosen. Now, we don't have to make it hard. All we have to do is preach the word, and our flesh recoils at so much of what the word has to say. Turn to Hebrews 10. We need to realize, every one of us, that God established the church on this earth for us, for you and for me. And if he established it, I need it. Hebrews 10, verse 24. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. Is that what we should do with each other? Is that what a new convert ought to find us doing? Should he also find us doing that for him or her? Somebody help me now. Of course. He said, let us consider as our brother's keeper or sisters, let us consider one another to provoke unto good works. Provoke. Provoke is a word that, as Barnes says in Barnes' notes, it said, let us so regard the welfare of others so as to endeavor to excite them to persevere in the Christian life. I think I could probably be safe in saying this. Almost everybody who starts this way at some point early wants to quit. Almost everybody. I know I did. There was a point in my life I determined that's all I'm going. I, I'm done with it. It, ain't, it just doesn't work for me. And that, that's one of the reasons we're here, to be keen and sensitive to each other's needs, especially new ones, and to provoke them to love and good works. Because you know, some of them dragging here, and I, you know, the ones that's whooping this say, whoo, this week and next week is sitting there like this here, needs a visit. They do. Preacher's not the only one that can visit people or not the only one that should. We're all members together, are we not? I mean, it's a personal concern you have to consider each other. And the, the epistles talk about this so much. Look at verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as a manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day Approaching. Are we our brother's keeper? Let me ask you all this. Does a word say that I have a divine 
God-given responsibility to care about somebody else other than myself. The Bible does say to a husband, love your wife even as yourself. As Jesus said, you love others more than yourself. No greater love than this than a man lay down his life for his brother or sister. At this time in our life now, right now, the focus is really, you know, as we are growing and learning, let's bring this part of our life into focus also. Not only our personal responsibility to relate to God on his terms, but also to begin to see how we can minister to each other, especially to the lost. But the church is where Christians are brought to. It's, this is not a place for lost people. Lost people can come if they want to. We don't tell them they can't because I don't know how it would prove who is saved. Anybody can act saved, act that way for a long time. I don't know how you prove. I can't see hearts. God can. I believe I am. And then you have to answer that for yourself, for all, each of you. When we come in here, we, we're to declare the word of God. And hopefully in such a way that, that it touches us. Because one of the things you're going to hear in Scripture, in the New Testament especially, is how you should feel about other people. I mean, even putting the needs of other people even before yourself. There was even the book of Acts where they sold everything they had in the beginning there when people were going to be on the street. They said, no, we're not going to do that. We wouldn't ourselves be on, want to be on the street. We'll, we'll take care of them. We'll do what we can. I mean, we're in this thing together. We're a unit. Jesus said that they may be, they may be one. I mean, we're a, we're a group of people led together by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of growing, of serving and observing the ordinances and being used of God to witness to this world. And there's so much we need to learn. I've known people like you have that don't see their need for church. Preacher, I don't know. He don't know more about it than I do. I already know that. I probably already heard what they're going to say. All these excuses for why you don't go to church or why you don't need to and why it's not a big deal. And yet the Bible says, forbid not the assembling of yourselves together. This is not a time for entertainment. I know that I'm the one talking tonight and I, the, the whole, everybody's focus is on the preacher. I mean, we can't help that. That's the way seats are made. That's the way we are. But what the Spirit does is take words and use those words to touch your heart. To make you at least go, hmm, that's true. Yeah, I need, yeah that, I, that's exactly right. Yeah, I need to do that. I see that. Or to hopefully to have that experience where you go, wow, wow, now I got it. Man, I need to get on the ball. See, something good like that should happen to us. Somebody comes in off the street, and I've seen that a lot, just like you. Not very many of those that just wander in ever stay very long. Hardly ever. Somebody almost has to go to them, find them, stay with them, come and get them, follow them around. You realize that there's lost people that you, you witness to. The devil has controlled their lives and their attitude for years. They've just absolutely mastered people. They're like little, little puppets that the devil controls. And then you come into their life, you bring a message. They want to be freed from all of their hangups and problems. And they ask you to pray with them. You pray with them. And then you, you bring them to church. You bring them. You don't just say go somewhere. You bring them. 
I, preacher told me one time, somebody in his church said, I don't know if I could bring them here or not. And the preacher, recalling a little bit, I think we all as preachers would, said you wouldn't want to bring them here, but you're here. So exactly why would you not want to bring them here? Because you preach too hard. What they mean was you talk about divorce and remarriage, you talk about Santa Claus, and you talk about this, you talk, and these things just irritate people. Let me tell you something. I'd rather you cry now than to cry later. And for myself, I would rather see you cry now than for me to cry later. Uh, amen anyway. Do what you want to. The Bible said I'm under a greater judgment than you all are. God help me if I don't declare what he's shown me. I can't tell you what I don't know, but I'll try to tell you what I do know. But the purpose of the word is not to see who can outdo each other. It's the purpose of the word is to cleanse us, to clean us up. The washing of water by the word. This sinner needs to come in. He gets cleansed. He gets washed. And all the questions he's going to have, you're going to answer those questions. Maybe we can get enough new ones to come to church. One of you will teach a, a new converts class on one night of the week. How would that sound? Bring about 15 of them new ones in here and have a new converts class. I've even got 10 outlines. You can do that. You can do that. You start from scratch. Let them ask questions. Interrupt you while you're talking so they can just have a conversation. How would that be? So they can get a hold of this truth and grow with it. So they can then be equipped to go out and tell other people, I know how you feel. I know what you're going through. I was just there myself. And let me tell you what the solution to all of it is. Wouldn't that be good? Wouldn't that be good? I think it would be good. I don't know that it would be good. I've never done it. But I think it would be good. Back in the old days, the Christian church, we used to, our Sunday school class was kind of like our teaching center. All the guys that were teaching Sunday school class, we finally rooted out the ones that didn't want to teach. You know, every year you assign a Sunday school teacher. Okay, Mabel, we, uh, you, can you teach the primary? <laughs> Is anybody else going to do it? I don't want to do it again. And finally, again, I said, I will. I will. I irritated our board one year so much. I know they didn't like me, and maybe I, I hope I'm not overdoing this and making myself out to be really character, but I made a motion one night at the board meeting. I said, I, I'd like to make a motion that we start Sunday school class at 10 o'clock instead of having all that stuff and sing onward Christian soldiers as we go to our classes and talk about birthdays and flowers. I said, I vote that when we get to church, we have Sunday school, and it lasts one hour. Well, some of those are teaching school. An hour? Woo! An hour? Yeah. You can put a coffee pot over if you want to in Sunday school class, sitting in the floor, sit in a circle, sitting where you want to. And then we get one hour to teach people. This little quarterly that we spend so much money on that people lose and can't keep. And we're going to teach the best we can, add the truth to it. And you would have thought it was awful, but they did. They voted it in. And the people who started coming to Sunday school class were the, were the ones who really wanted to hear it. And the old ones that didn't, that don't like all this long, you know, they quit coming. Some of them did. And we had an hour to teach Sunday school class. I remember the joy of that in my early days. Just before I was doing any preaching or teaching, all I did was teach Sunday school class. 
I still in school, teacher, coaching basketball, I think, or maybe I was just getting out. I sit up all night in the kitchen there working on this Sunday school lesson until about 3 a.m. and I was about to pass out and go to church in that morning and just, wow, just ready to go. I, the enthusiasm was affecting other people. I believed it. I liked it. They kept coming. Our Sunday school classes got so big, and one day the preacher came to me and he said, said Tom, uh, we've had a lot of complaints about your Sunday school class. He said, well, everybody's going to yours. There were young kids in there, the little ones and the teenagers and the older folks. And in that little chapel, remember the little chapel down in the basement? It'd hold 50 or 60 people. They were standing around on the sides. And I was just as happy, just barking, just enthusiastic. I was saved. And then they quit going to all the other classes. And the teachers in the other classes said, well, there's no sense of me coming here. There's no class for me to teach. They're all down there in Hamilton's. This is how my ministry started preacher said, Tom, let me give you Sunday night. Why don't you start a Sunday night Bible study upstairs in the sanctuary? Because everybody's going to your class and I'm getting a lot of heat off these other teachers and we need to rearrange it. We need to do something else. So I started a Sunday night Bible study up in the sanctuary and, uh, you know, the 30 or 40 who wanted to come did. And that was really how it started for me. I think that's how it would started. I mean, I was doing a little traveling from churches, giving testimonies, but it started that way. I was new in the Lord. And when we would bring somebody to the Lord in those days, we'd bring them to church. And they'd come, and they got caught up in the enthusiasm. And they'd start talking about the Word. And they'd all buy them a Bible. We all bought little Cambridge Bibles. <laughs> and it was just a lot of fun. But it was Christianity. It was a church in action. It was saved people doing two things, going and growing. Not just numbers and that. We, our little church increased over 100 people in one year. In Indiana, that was in a little church in, in Disciples of Christ Church. I think we were in the top five churches that grew in numbers that much in one year. Big deal. But this wasn't a growth of just elephant rides and... Stuff to get people to come to church. I mean, it was going out and knocking on doors, leading people to Christ, and then personally seeing to it that you brought those people to church. And if you had to, you sit beside them. You show them in the Bible where the preacher was going. You let them read it. They were a part of it. They became ingrained in it, and most of them stayed. And out of that one little church, this thing, this lasted for, what, three or four years? I think it was seven preachers came out of there. Seven of us, I think, started taking the word. It actually went all over the world. I don't know how, what degree of effect it had, but it went everywhere. A couple of us did anyway. And it, just something that God did. I, I would love to see, I'm not looking for a, an old experience to come back to life myself. But I have never forgotten the sheer joy of just going to church. Just going to church of waiting for something to happen because you expected it to. And we would go see people, talk to people. You just almost expected somebody to get saved. And when you brought them to church, you'd be just so glad, and it was so easy to worship and, and praise because it was the gospel in action. I mean, things were happening. God was adding to the church. It was so good. It was so good. But the church... Is set in a community in the presence of the lost people that 
the members of that church begin attached to each other. They consider one another to provoke one another to good works. And they see the day is coming. You know, the darkness, Jesus said, the night's coming. Man won't be able to work. So while you have an opportunity, while there is time, take it to heart and deal with it because the day is coming, he said, when things are going to change. They're really going to change. But the word in not forsaking means don't desert your obligation to the church. Everybody in here that God has put here in this church, you're a part of it. You have a role to play. You have a responsibility to it. I do and you do. I mean, whatever he wants from us, if he's going to bless us, we have a responsibility to share that blessing. If he's going to give us talents, we have a responsibility to use those talents. Amen. You know, more and more I'm beginning to think like, you know, being a pastor doesn't mean you have to preach every week. It's not like I have to do this every week to prove or demonstrate that God has called me. I already know that. But sometimes you got to realize I'm learning this too, learning this. You can teach old dogs new tricks, but anyway, I'm learning this, that God puts in the church certain unique individuals that have a call. They don't know it yet. We don't even know it yet. But they need some kind of an opportunity, some kind of an opportunity to share, some kind of an opportunity to be seen and known. I mean, when God puts gifts in the church, people don't get a tag and when they come into church said gifts of healings working of miracles signs and wonders they don't do that but hopefully as the more attached we get to each other the more concerned we have the more interested we are in each other the more these things will begin to show up the church is called to make disciples to take lost people who were living for the devil and by the instruction of the word through the anointing of the Holy Spirit bring information to them that causes them to see the need for continuous change in their life. Gone from a person who is, I don't know about all that to somebody that says, I know in whom I have believed. How did you know? I was taught. God showed it to me. I see it in the Bible. It's just clear. I can look down my Bible and I can see it. One of the things he said the word would do, the ministry would do is for the perfecting of the saints, didn't he? For the perfecting of the saints. To put us in order, that's what it's about. To bring a bunch of independence together and by the power of the word to show us our need for each other. I mean, look at all the places again, all the places that we're from, the different things that we were, the ways that we're all like in our differences. And yet God says, I want you all to become one. I want you to be together. I want you to care about each other. I want you to forgive one another, love one another. You read in Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians how he talks about that. You know what the picture in the Bible of it is as a church? Turn to Proverbs 22. This is the biblical picture of what a church is in talking about parenting. In talking about parenting, you see a picture of what the church is like. Proverbs 22 and verse 6. Your Bible says, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. Training a child. What about, now let's make this a church. 
training up a child. God, our father, is so interested in us, his children, that it's his purpose and design in bringing us together to train us. Or the word means to teach us, to discipline us, to make us like him. To be like Jesus, we sing, to be like Jesus. That's what's going on. Hopefully it's going on, but this is what he wants. It's a training ground. Don't we prove ourselves as reliable here before we send somebody out? Don't we have to verify the character of somebody before they represent us somewhere else? I mean, a newcomer wouldn't come in here and say, well, I'm going to go do this for the Lord. Well, now you can go if you want to. But I don't think you're ready to do that yet, and we won't stand behind you to do that. We don't think you're ready. If you can't take care of the little things in your life, and you're not ready to go tell other people how to take care of the big things in their life. You need to prove yourself. It's like training a child. Would you let your 12-year-old boy drive your car to town one day just so he can prove he can drive? I don't think so. I don't think so. He's got to learn to drive the lawnmower before he can drive the car. And if he runs over everything in the yard and won't pick up the sticks, then he's not ready to drive either. So your father teaches the child, doesn't he? Isn't that what a daddy's supposed to do? Isn't that what a father would do with his child? To teach him as he grows? And, and instruct him about what's right and wrong and why he should and shouldn't do? And does not a Godly father lived by example so that his child can not only hear what, hear what his daddy says, but see what he does. Of course. The same way with girls and their mother. I mean, a, a godly mom is a trainer. She demonstrates how a girl ought to submit to her husband and how she relate to men by watching her mother. She learns. And she hears the Bible say that, and she says, well, yeah, I've seen, I've seen that happen with my mother. Even Proverbs 30 says her children will rise up and call her blessed because she's got that testimony. Well, it's, it's the result of training, teaching. We weren't like that naturally, were you? Were all you women good, godly women naturally? No. Are you now? Got a crick in my neck. <laughs> well, you hope so. How do you know you should be like that? The word says it. You were enjoying the series you had last month and they started on teaching on the family. You've just been irritated ever since because there's things in your life that just bother you about what the preacher said. Or some of you young girls, we talk about dress, about those tight jeans you all like to wear. That's not right. But I know you wear them anyway. But I'm going to say it anyway. Because you see, there's something that's not right about things. Wearing pretty tight shorts, you think that's right? See, but now you say, I don't like you saying it. Well, it's not that I enjoy saying that either. I don't wear tight jeans. I don't wear tight shorts either. So I can <laughs> Wouldn't that be a picture to see? We just learned. The church is a training center. You train a child up the way he is to go, and when he is old, he won't depart from it. We've always thought he'll always do the righteous things in his life as he grows older. Uh, he might, but uh, training has a lot to do, too, with how to behave, how to be polite, 
how to be kind. You know, I wasn't a nice boy, but I, was, I knew how to do all that. Because my mother was on me like a, as we'd say in the old days, like a duck on a June bug. And that might be foreign to some of you, but that's pretty quick and pretty, pretty aggressive. My mother was big on, on saying yes, and, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir, and doing proper things. I was trained like that. I wasn't trained to be a Christian. That didn't happen until after I was born again and started attending church, and then it became my life. I mean, it's the only necessary thing in our life. Jesus said only one thing is necessary. That's doing what Mary did at the feet of Jesus, hearing his word. So that's what we want to bring the lost into. We want to bring them into a place like this that they, they can be saved. So we beg to ask the question again, then, then who is one? Who is one? Well, there, there, give me quickly three things here. Who is one? Number one, Matthew 24 and verse 13. But he that shall endure to the end shall be saved. Does your Bible say something like that? He that shall endure. That means your hands on the plow, there's no turning back. Amen. Now, you got you got to tell the converts that. You don't leave that out. You don't leave that out of a message when somebody is here because, oh, that might, they might not like that. They're not here to be entertained. They're here to be trained and taught and informed so they can deal with things. But the Bible plainly says it's not those who start but those who finish. He that endures to the end, the same shall be saved. And then quickly look over in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. The writer of Hebrews says, But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are. Then the word if. Do you see the word if? That's a condition, isn't it? Christ is a son over us, his house, if. Now here's what it says. If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Well, why wouldn't we? Because of temptations and testings and, and difficulties and problems and failures and adversity that comes along the way that we're warned about and that we teach about so much. Most people give up. We're going to tell you it's going to happen. You're going to face it. If you want to quit, you can. But if you do, you're in trouble. Even like Hebrews 10, if any man draw back, God said, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. That's not designed to make us moan. It's a warning. It's, it's to warn us that you can't give yourself the freedom to go back. You can't say, well, you know, I'm not all that bad. I mean, this ain't going to keep it. It might. It might. Then verse 14. For we are made partakers of Christ if... There it is again. If we hold the rejoicing of our confidence steadfast to the end. Uh, that's so clear that the little ones can understand that. You got to have the confidence to begin with. Listen to me. You've got to know sitting in this room, you've got to know that you're saved. You've got to know that you've been born again, that Christ is in you. You've got to know that because confidence springs from that. If you're wondering about that, you don't have confidence. You don't know who you are in Christ. You hope you're the right person, but you don't know. So, 
in closing out this series, in closing out this series, let me go back almost where I started. There's two questions that you need to ask people if you're going to talk to them. And there's two questions that you in this room and me, you have got to deal with. There are no exceptions. And the first question is, and it's a universal thing. When you die, where will you be? Where will you go? What will happen to you when you die? I say universal because it is a point that a man wants to die. Everybody dies. Unless Jesus comes in our lifetime, everybody in this room one day will die. We don't know how, we don't know where, but we'll all die. We're not made to live forever in this natural body. But we're going to die. And once you die, you're going to face judgment. You're going to face somebody. And what will happen to you folks, you in this building right now, as well as those watching or those who listen to this message? What will happen to you? That's the first question is, when you die, what will happen? You'll either be in heaven or in hell. Even John 3.16 says, that he that believeth shall not perish, but have everlasting life. It's either, it's either or. You either perish or you live. You either die or you live. You either lost or you're saved. It's one or the other for all of us. There's no middle ground. There's no other ground. That's all there is. Yes or no, in or out. It's the most important question you'll ever ask yourself. When my life ends, where will I be? After it ends, will I be in heaven or will I be in, be in hell? Second question, you say, well, I'll go to heaven. I hope I do anyway. Well, why would God, second question, why would God let you in heaven? If he said to you tonight, let's say that death has happened and whatever happens after death, wherever, whatever, but let's just say that you have to look at God or face God. And he says to you, your earthly life has ended. Whether you're old or young, there's nothing you can do now to change anything you've ever done. All your chances, all your opportunities have come and they have gone. You're in the eternal state now. You're alive. Your conscience is here. You don't forget anything. Even people in hell will remember their opportunities. But you're alive. And the question is, why would I let you in heaven? That's the question. Why would God let any of us in this room in heaven? I like to think. I like to think that after 30 years for most of us, a lot of us, we would know for sure beyond the shadow of a doubt, be able to say like Paul, I know in whom I have believed and I am convinced, persuaded, and sure that if I die right now, I'm going to heaven. Well, that's a man you can't bribe, you can't defeat. What's he afraid of? Whom should he fear? God is with him. Who's against him? Who's bigger than God? Who can get past the angels that God sends to protect you? I mean, this is a guy that, that, that has been settled and rooted and grounded in the truth of God's word, or her, whoever, 
And when you die, there's this confidence. Paul says, I'm ready to depart. Didn't he say that? I'm ready to depart and be with Christ. So he knew that when he departs from this, in the twinkling of an eye, you go from to right there. Not even time to wonder where you're at. You go from death to life. They're the very presence of God. Maybe the chorus of angels are welcoming us or you, whoever makes it, welcoming you down whatever way you get, whatever we do. And there's great rejoicing in heaven. Love one, see, I don't know. Never been there yet. But will you go to heaven? Will you go to heaven? And if you say, well, I do, then why will you go? You know what the answer, we've already told you this before, but you know what the answer of most people is? This is why they think they're going to heaven and why they're not concerned about it. I'm not a basically bad person. Well, I'm not all that bad. So their concept of heaven is that heaven is for good enough people. And hell is for really bad, you know, really bad people, people that hurt people and harm people and abuse people and, and, and are just ugly, vile, violent people, terrorist-type people. That's what hell's for. And I ain't that bad. Well, are you good enough to go to heaven? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm no saint, but I don't think I deserve that. I don't think I'm going to hell. The people you talk to are going to talk like that. This is what they're going to tell you. Well, I'm not that bad. I mean, surely not then you learn what we call the Roman road. Let me tell you what the Roman road is. Turn to Romans 3. This is what you tell people, and they say, well, I think I'm good enough, or I don't think I'm that bad. Your first answer is, the Bible says that no man is good enough or can be good enough to go to heaven. Now, they won't believe it. Trust me with this one. They won't believe that because they still have fabricated in their mind what constitutes salvation. Salvation is being good enough. My high school principal and I have told you that story many times. We had that conversation once. And I asked him, I said, so you think if you're good enough and you do good and you don't hurt people and you're, you know, you're a good citizen and all that, then you'll go to heaven. He said, well, I think that's, yeah, I think that's right. I said, well, then Jesus Christ was a fool. You're telling me you don't need Jesus, and you obviously don't in your life. I didn't say that. But I can say it to most people. You obviously don't see your need for Jesus because you ignore him for most all of your life. The things you do are things that he condemns, things that he might call an abomination, and, and yet you do it anyway because he, he doesn't factor into your conduct. It doesn't really matter to you what he says. You're not interested in what he says. But you're good enough for him to accept you in heaven. Really? Actually, no man's good enough. The Bible teaches you can't make yourself good enough. Romans 3, what's verse 23 say? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none, there's not a righteous, it's verse 10, that goes on to say there is, uh, there is not a righteous one, no, not one. See, you, you draw a little circle or you paint that yellow stuff you do on your pages you go to Romans 3.23 and you paint that. And you tell this person who thinks he's going to heaven or she's going to heaven because they're not basically bad. And you say, well, you know, you are basically bad because there's not a good person ever on their own merits. 
There is, it's not possible. All have sinned and come short of the glorious God. And again, in verse 10, there's not a righteous one amongst them. Verse 11 of Romans 3 said, there is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. Nobody. And your meager attempts at going to church on Easter Sunday qualifies you as an unbeliever, unrighteous, unholy, and wrong. Now, if you tell a person that, they probably quit talking to you. So you might not want to be that strong, but you do need to tell a person that no social goodness can get you in heaven. No kind acts and deeds can get you in heaven any more than preaching for 50 years can get you in heaven. Because Jesus said, remember in Matthew 7, I never, I never knew you. So if you get to heaven, then he's not going to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. He's going to say, I never knew you. Who told you to flee from the wrath to come? You didn't. You lived your own life on your own terms. You fabricated your own theology and lived as though that was true, and you missed heaven by a mile. You rested the scriptures, and you, the people who listened to you, they got rested along with you. Your proselytes were as corrupt as you are, preacher. The whole bunch went to hell. Oh, my goodness, people. Oh, no. That's one of the reasons we left the churches we were in. Because they said, no, you cannot take this gospel in your life any further. We had to get away from whatever we were in. Couldn't go anymore. And look where we wound up. Shelbyville. But you could have been the worst place. Second thing about this Roman road is you tell the person, well, nobody's good. You're all sinners. Look at chapter 6 and verse 20, 23. We've all sinned, come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin, verse 23, the wages of sin is what? Death. You're born once into this world. You, you might tell them this. You're born once, but you're going to die twice. Isn't that right? You're born once by your mother's efforts and so forth, and the grace of God, you made it. There you are. You're born once, and you'll die a natural death, and then you'll die eternally. But you'll live eternally, but you'll live dead. You'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth forever and forever, where the Bible says your worm dieth not your consciousness. Lazarus, you know, he said, send him over to dip his finger in water and cool my tongue. Jesus said, you had a chance in your lifetime and you didn't take it. He did. Not those words. I can only imagine one day the worst thing was when the Lord came and led captivity captive and emptied that place. And now he looks over there and there's nothing over there. And he could have been there, but he's not. And forever and ever and ever, he lives with his past mistakes, but he can't do anything about it because the wages of sin is death. It is the reason man is separated from God. Sin. It's not because God didn't elect you or choose you. You go to hell because of sin. You absolutely chose sin. That was your choice. You knew better, but he that knoweth to do good, help me. He that knows to do good but doesn't do it, to him it is sin. Even that old sinner out there plowing his field, the Bible says he's while he's plowing, he's sinning. He's not thanking God for any crop. He's not going to share his, the goodness of his crop with God. 
God has nothing to do with his life, but one day he dies and he faces God and all the truth of his life comes to bear. All the things that man's preacher never told him, God will tell him and his preacher will suffer the consequences too. Oh, maybe we're getting closer to that day, folks. Turn to Romans 5. Maybe we're getting closer and it's that time to bear down. Romans 5 and verse 8. But this is what God did for those that were dying. But God commended his love toward us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Did you know that Jesus came to die for you? Jesus came to this world to die for us. If you had been the only sinful person in the world, he would have died for you. That's how God cares for those that are lost that he's going to save. The only way you can be saved is by an act of God. God has made the provision for all of us to be saved. God has given us a necessary word and a, and a plain word to give us reasons to live on his terms. And the only reason we don't connect is because we don't want to. And that's our great flaw in Christianity. Is this rebellious thing in which we put ourselves on a level with, with God? Well, I don't, yeah, I, don't think a man ought to, I don't think a man has to do that. Yeah, well, I know the Bible says that, but, you know, I don't know. That. And you start acting like you're your own God. And you fall short of his glory because there's no glory in our own little godhood. And yet the terrible tragedy of human life is that multitudes upon multitudes upon multitudes of people will die eternally. Either because they weren't told it right, didn't quite understand it the way they thought they would, or didn't want it. But they made a choice. Everybody in this church here has a chance to make choices. You out there listening have a chance to make choices. But God commended his love toward us. That while I was a sinner, Jesus Christ came and died. The way he died, he died for me. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He came into the world to save sinners. And he also said he was chief of sinners. He said, I was so bad I couldn't be saved, and yet he saved me. He might have been close. He might have been close. And then finally, would you close tonight? We'll close this series with John 3.16. What a proper verse to end our meeting with and end a series with. John 3, verse 16. That was the first verse Mrs. Wallace taught me to, to understand sitting on her porch in Charlestown, Indiana on Level Street back when I was a boy. She made me sit in that swing while she read the Bible to me. And I remember this. She said, don't you ever forget this. And I'm thinking, all I want to do, Miss Wallace, is get out of this swing and get over to my house because your husband is crazy and I don't want to be out here and him get me and choke me down and hurt me. But I remembered. I remembered that. She, John 3, 16, she made me say it. God so loved the world. That's you. That he gave his only begotten son that whosoever... This is the one condition 
It's a big word and it has a lot of teaching. But whosoever believeth on him should not perish. Relief. But have everlasting life. Whosoever believeth on him should not perish. Remember Acts 16, the Philippian jailer fell down and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Remember what Paul said? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You mean just believe like acknowledge that it's all? No, believe is a word of action. It's an acknowledgement of something that's true and then it's living and acting like it's true. It's a believer. One who believes. It's a verb. It shows action. It does something. He that believeth doeth. And that's how it works, folks. Now listen to me. There's a lost world for all of us. Somewhere on the boat, airplane, fair, street corner, customers, side, whatever it is. Somebody is waiting on you folks right here to do what you've been called to do. Amen. Bow your head with me. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray you have been pleased tonight with our efforts, with our desires, with our attitudes that we have in this building tonight. I pray that you have found fertile soil that you can plant this word that it will not just roll off of our back like unnecessary, unneeded things, that we will receive it. Knowing that this night is about gone, it'll never come back. We had this night as an opportunity, one more time to hear your word. I pray that you'd make us all to be soul winners, all of us, so that we are forced to get a big building, whatever it takes, but more than anything, so that your people can be useful to you in bringing lost people to Jesus, that they might be one. I pray you give us truly tonight, I pray in Jesus' name, you give us a heart to think like this and to desire this. In Jesus' name, I ask you to do that, Lord. And begin to quicken us through the day. Make us aware of who we are and the wonderful privileges and responsibilities that we have. Now I ask you to bless these people here as we leave this building tonight. Bless us and find us useful vessels. I ask in Jesus' name, amen, amen.